Welcome to Teaching Transformations, Designing Your Post-Career Life with Tim Desmond and Ryan Woolley. What's up, Desmond? <laughs> Not much, man. How you doing? All right. All Just right. tech issues. I hate technology sometimes. Yeah, technology sucks, you know? <laughs> Get back to the good old days of like typewriters and paper and pen. Oh, boy. <laughs> so we're in that north northeast ohio stretch between january and march and we're like right in the middle of it it's yeah. it's uh cold and dark the days are short getting starting to get a little longer maybe but how do you deal with yeah, this yeah i don't i don't do well with this uh i think it's hereditary my, my i remember my dad uh I mean, grow, growing up in Pittsburgh, he just hated winter. I mean, he hated it. And uh, it was especially when the, it was a combination of two things. It was the, um, the decreasing daylight and then the lack of sunlight. And, and like in this part of the country, um, you get that and then you get like the cold and the snow. Uh, and, and so for me, uh, you know, Joy and I have already, you know, we've already decided like it's, it's, as soon as our youngest graduates, we are out of here. We're gone far, far away, probably south. Oh, that makes me sad. You, you, you don't, it doesn't bother I, you? I don't, not really. I mean, I think it's just because it's all I've known. I, I, I mean, for me, I feel like I'm, I'm always living in this sense of like, perpetual anticipation of something better coming. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's connected to Cleveland sports. Um, it's just, <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't bother me. I feel like it makes me appreciate the the sunny days and the longer days when they get here. Yeah, all six of them. It's great. <laughs> I just talked to my friend Ben last night. He called me out of the blue. Uh, he lived here for like five years and he moved back south and he's so happy to be back there. He's like, so is it is it 60 and sunny there too? And I'm like, no, not yet. It, it matters though. It really does. Now, I will say this is the this is the first year that I've been exercising outside. So, so prior to the pandemic in 2020, I was going to a gym. Uh, in the mornings to get in my cardio, and when all the gyms shut down and uh, and I started running and, and I've been doing that ever since and uh, I, I wasn't sure what winter was gonna you know what was gonna happen in winter because it's not so much a matter of cold, but we live in a place where we get lake effect snow and uh, like in February we pretty much get snow every night like you just wake up oh yep there's another inch or two on the ground and uh, so the challenge isn't running in the cold it's it's running without like slipping and breaking your back. Uh, but I've been doing it, and and I I have to honestly say I think out of the past ten years or so, uh, I feel like I've most uh, I'm most adjusted to the to the Cleveland winter this year, and I think it's because I'm I'm running outside for like thirty minutes every morning, and I think it's helping my body acclimate to that. Interesting. I I think it was Tim Ferriss that said that you burn more calories if you're exercising in the cold. Oh, it has really? to do with like heat exchange or something like that. Yeah, it's 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 an it's odd because like I I run I run before the sun comes up. I get my run in uh, really early, 
And so I, I, I like get out of the warm bed, out of the warm house, and I step into, you know, it was five degrees this morning, and it's dark, and it's cold, and it's wet. Um, and yet I get about 10 or 15 minutes in, and my fingertips are a little cold. But other than that, it, the cold weather doesn't really bother me. And I guess that's because, like you said, you know, burning so many calories and, uh, and get, getting the, the blood pumping. Um, it, it doesn't bother me in the second half of my run. Wow. Uh, good for you. You're a machine. I, <laughs> I don't think I could do that. Yeah, I don't. I didn't think I could either. But then, you know, you just get into a system. You get into a habit, and uh, you just yeah, you just do yeah. it. <laughs> so I talked about anticipation being related to the seasons for me, and you know, some of my anticipation right now is is coming from this project and a, and a couple of other ones that I'm I'm tickling at the moment. Um, I'm not. I'm not yet immersed. Um, I haven't jumped into the deep end, but I'm working on it and I see possibilities and, and that's exciting for me. Um, and it's, it's hard to say whether the plunge is going to happen more sort of after a conventional retirement or if it'll be accelerated, um, kind of like yours was. Um, but I'm just excited to be working on some of this finally. Yeah, there is, there's definitely, um, I don't know, there, there's this sort of cheesy hope, I guess, that's that's kind of baked into that whenever you're starting something new and that it's it's just full of all kind of possibilities. And uh, I, I think I've discovered too, and you can you can probably back this up, like I, I love starting and building stuff. I hate managing things. <laughs> and as soon as something's built, um, I, I start to lose interest. And I've I've changed positions and or and or jobs about every five to seven years. So I, there, that starting energy for me is very attractive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I and I think some people are are the opposite. Some people aren't don't enjoy that and and maybe aren't good right. at it. So I think you know it's important to know what speaks to you. Yes. Yeah. So I have kind of a big question for you today, um, but I want to draw a little bit of context first. I know we've talked about your accelerated retirement story or your independent story quite a bit. Um, we've identified it as an important focal point of this project for a, a variety of reasons. And um, I'm sure there are multiple chapters that we're going to delve into. Uh, but if this story were captured in book form, one of the early chapters might be called Side Hustle and another might be called Independence. And somewhere in one of those chapters, you became aware that you were building something. Um, I want you to try to identify the, the moment when that light bulb went off for you. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how much we've gotten into what I did. I mean, other than like, so my goal, my plan was to write and publish fiction full time. Right, I think we've established mm -hmm. that, and um, I think in in one of those, as life does, that's not exactly what happened, and and I that's okay. So um, I came. All right, so we talked about uh, the conversation I had with the headmaster and how I didn't renew my contract, and I I basically had two two months of salary coming to me, and then I was kind of on my own, and right. Uh, in the spring of 2017, at the same time, 
Zach and I had released the Final Awakening trilogy, which was a, um, a post-apocalyptic sci-fi trilogy set in New Orleans, and that book did that book and series did extremely well. In fact, it did better than anything else we we did before or since. Um, it outsold any any book that I did uh, by myself. And just to kind of give folks some idea, I mean, at one point we were probably splitting seven to eight thousand dollars a month uh, just just from that series. So it wasn't it wasn't exactly like matching my my salary, but it was it was going in the right direction. And I, and I had this feeling in the summer of 2017 that like all right, this is, this is going to work. Like this is, you know, this is what I was thinking about. And, uh, but one, when that tail, when that sales tail kind of dipped and as, as they do, like when you publish books on Amazon, you, you know, you have a, they call it the 30 day cliff where you get most of your sales in the first 30 days and then they kind of tail off. And that's just a natural thing for anything that you're selling. Um, but as we got further into 2017 both Zach and I realized like okay we've like this is still making money but it's like it's not like Twilight money or it's not like JK Rowling money you know like it was it was enough and uh, and we were gonna have to replicate this and and I started to get a little bit worried because we had published a couple of other co-written titles and they didn't come anywhere close to the launch that Final Awakening did and uh, this was my my harsh introduction to the 80-20 rule, the Pareto principle, this idea that, you know, 80% of your benefits are coming from 20% uh, of your efforts. And if you look at, look at that in terms of books, what it means is, you know, one or two of your books is going to sell 80 to 90% of your, you know, total royalties for all your books. Um, and this idea that like, you know, you can't engineer a bestseller, like you can, if, if you could, every filmmaker, every writer would, would publish a bestseller every time out. Um, but that's just not how it works. There's some fate, kismet, luck, chance, whatever you want to call it. There's, there's some element of that. So I started having, I won't call it panic attacks, but I was <laughs> starting to think as we're getting into 2017, the school year is starting. It's the first one that I'm not part of in decades. Uh, I know you and I had a few messages. I was kind of asking you how the opening faculty meetings were going and uh i think you were rubbing it in that i had to go to them but <laughs> i i was yeah <laughs> i was kind of being a jerk about it but i i, I was also get a bit concerned because i was like okay you know final awakening was great but like we can't necessarily not that we can't replicate it but we can't plan on replicating it and uh and the and the few efforts we made weren't really going anywhere um, at the same time, I had been following uh, Sean Coyne uh, at StoryGrid. Sean Coyne was a, a, a big trad uh, publishing, acquiring editor for, for decades in, in New York, and he acquired and edited numerous number, New York Times number one bestsellers we'd all recognize. Who it is isn't important. But he's developed this methodology called StoryGrid, and in the fall of 2017, he was starting a certification program. And what that meant was uh, you go down, uh, they were holding this in Nashville. So you go down to Nashville for five days of intensive training and you walk out of there with a story grid certification. Not that that meant anything at the time, but um, what it meant was I was, I felt like I was upping my game as a novelist. So I, I primarily went because I wanted to write better stories and I wanted to sell more. And I thought, well, if the stories are better, they're going to sell more. 
So therefore, the story grid certification made sense. And then also, uh, it would allow it would it would uh, give me an easier on ramp to getting clients. So if I wanted to edit other work or do book coaching or author services, having the stamp of of Sean Coyne's approval would really mean a lot in the industry. And um, and this was you had to apply for it. Um, there were only 19 of us in that in that first group. They've they've since certified uh, other cohorts, but there were only 19. So you figure you're one of 19 people in the world that have this certification for whatever it's worth. And um, <laughs> again, a, a terrible decision. Um, I didn't have the money. Uh, it, I think it was six thousand dollars for the training, and then it was uh, travel expenses. So you know, seven grand. Uh, and here I am, like cashing my last school paycheck, <laughs> um, and I was like, I, I kind of felt like I had to do it, and, and I talked to my wife about it, and, and she was like, well, if that's what you think you need to do, then go ahead and do it. And um, what I didn't really tell her at the time, although I think she probably assumed it, <laughs> was that I put that on the credit card, and, and like I, it was. It was a gamble that I knew would pay off. I didn't know when. I knew it would pay off, but in the short term, it was not something I was proud of. Because, but I had to do it. Like I just felt like I had to do it. And and so I go through. I'm in that training. Uh, it's intense, man. I mean, we're we we would start at eight in the morning. We were we were going all day. Um, we were analyzing movies and short stories at night. Um, it was wonderful. It was it was everything I thought it would be. Uh, and I realized when I was there that I was out of the 19, there were only maybe one or two other people who were also writing novels. Most of the people who attended were professional editors or wanted to be professional editors. And they were there to, to learn how to, how to edit and how to get clients and that sort of thing. So when I came back from that, I kind of realized that I was sitting at this, this nexus of, of a skill stack that just not many people had. I, I had a story grid certification. I had a best-selling book on Amazon. And at that time, I had published dozens of novels, written and published dozens of my own novels. And there just weren't many people in the world who, who, who had that combination. Um, there, are much more, there are many more now, but e even four years ago, there, there weren't a lot. And so that was when the light bulb went off. And I thought, okay, um, I can still, I can continue to write books if I'm going to be an editor, I want to be a practitioner. I, I don't want to. I I don't want to be an editor who doesn't write books because I feel like I don't understand the client as well. So I, I'm going to keep writing the books. Zach and I are going to keep co-writing, but I'm going to start dabbling in author services and and see where that goes. And I knew with my experience in teaching that I kind of knew how to move students through a particular process or or a curriculum for lack of a better word and so that's when the light bulb came off and and when i one of the things I, I won't give the exact figure but one of the reasons that sean said that he started the certification program was that he was getting offers from people to to edit their work and he didn't want to do that anymore like he had spent decades doing that so he wanted to certify editors who could who could do this? And he's like, and and he's like, most people can't afford me. He's like, when I send him the bill, which was you know tens of thousands of dollars, uh, you know, he had very very few clients who could pay that. And when I heard that, I was like, okay, I don't need tens of thousands, but thousands would be nice. <laughs> like that would pay the bill. So I think that is when the light bulb went off, where I thought, okay, I can I can 
leverage my skills and experience as a teacher. I can continue writing fiction, which is what I really love doing. And I can help other people in, a, in, a, in the same industry and, and make uh, additional revenue that way. So that's when the light bulb went off. It was the fall of 2017. Mm-hmm. So you kind of just looked around and, and said, wow, when, I, when you step back and look at your skill set, you realized it was really unique and it enabled you to offer these services to people. Yeah, and I think the the uh, I think that the turning point was I'd either read his book or I heard him on a podcast, but I was uh, really into uh, Scott Adams, who did is the Dilbert cartoonist. Um, I think he wrote a book called Skill Stack, and the and and it's this exact idea, and this is where I first heard it. He said you don't need to be um, the best at everything. He's like you only need to be pretty good at a few things that um that a lot of people don't have so he's like i'm not the funniest guy i'm not the best cartoonist and i'm not the best business person but he's like i'm pretty good at all three and and not and there are very few people in the world who do all three of those things in one person and i was like ah okay so like that's the idea is like tapping into your your skills your experience your passions your interests and sort of stacking those in a way that makes you unique, as opposed to trying to be the best in the world at something, which is almost impossible to do. I like that image, and I've never heard that term before. That's that's intriguing. I'm going to have to think about this now, um, because I'm sure we all have that. We all can take our unique skills and stack them in a way that sets us apart from the crowd. I, I give you another example. Uh, one of my one of my friends, Jeff, one of my author buddies. Uh, it was listening to my podcast for years, wonderful guy. And he came to me and said, it was kind of in my situation. He's like, I'm kind of stalling. Like my fiction's not going anywhere. My day job is fine. He's like, it's good, but I want to start building something for the future. He's a little bit younger than us. He's in his, probably his mid forties, but he's like, I, I just, I want to be looking ahead. I want to be forward thinking. And, um, and we got to talking and uh, as it turns out, he works for a company that simulates conversations in um, for different like uh, addiction programs and social workers and training where they write scripts. It's not AI. They write scripts. Um, and then those scripts are put into a computer program. So if someone is trying to learn how to, you know, uh, talk to someone who's abusing drugs, um, based on their response, the program will give them this sort of pre-recorded, pre-written dialogue, right? And uh, so he's like, yeah, so that's, that's kind of what I do during the day. And I was like, Jeff, <laughs> do you realize how important dialogue is to novelists? Like this guy, this guy, Jeff, has, had, has been spending the past 10 years, day in and day out, writing realistic dialogue. And I'm like, dude, that's your skill stack. Like take that skill that you do in your day job, this idea of, of, of realistic dialogue and offer that as a service. Start a podcast, start a newsletter, write a book. Because um, I'm like, how many writers in the world can say that they are writing and publishing their own novels and also working on dialogue for their day job all day long? Like that's, I'm like, you're probably the only one in the world. The, and and, and it, you know, it, as it turns out, there are only a handful of companies in the world that do this. And he basically knows all the companies and all the people. So he literally is the only person in the world that has this particular skill stack. Yeah. Well, all the teachers and academics I know are not just a teacher. I mean, every right. single one of them 
uh, and you know, I know people that are into writing. I know people who, and do a little bit of that on the side. I know people who do home improvement stuff on the side. I know people who are into, you know, investing and the stock market. Um, and they happen to do these things aside alongside just being a teacher. And, you know, the, those two things can be stacked over top of one another. Yes. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know if we should say the same. We won't, but uh, there's a guy that you and I both knew or uh, know or knew who um, ran a garlic business, mm -hmm. like grew and sold his own garlic. Like something like, like you could teach people how to grow garlic in their backyard. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that's one of the great things about being a teacher or being an educator or a coach is you have a universal skill set. You, you like if you're a bricklayer and you're really good at laying bricks. That's awesome, but that's about all you can use that skill for is brickwork, right? Masonry. But like if you're a teacher, you can teach just about anything. And and we know from being in the classroom, I know my own experience, uh, you, you don't have to be that far ahead of your students. You only need to be a step or two ahead and and, and you can you can teach. So uh, there's a built-in advantage for people who have any sort of experience in any type of educational environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, we've talked about this too. Part of being a teacher is being a learner, uh, and you know, right. so we we're good at that. Um, and and part of that is making connections, and that's that's that allows us to do a lot of different things. Um. So, are you still doing the story grid work? Well, it's so that's really evolved, right? That that was the start of my client-based business. I started by doing one-on-one -on -one cons weekly consultations. Uh, so I someone would hire me uh, to be their book coach or whatever you want to call it. And every week I would get on a call with them like this and we would go over a chapter or two together. Um, I would read, make some comments. We'd come together, talk about it. They would either revise it or do it the next week. And there would be this ongoing thing. Um, that's where it started. Where I am now, four years later, is I've built the, the Author Success Mastermind community. Um, I've, I've sort of phased out of the one-to-one -one stuff because it's really time intensive. Uh, and um, I think that's a pretty common evolution for a lot of people who do uh, client work is you start one-on-one -on -one and then you scale to sort of either one-to-few or one-to-many um, just because of the nature of the work. Uh, but I, I, do, I do some uh, manuscript diagnostics and reviews. Uh, I've phased things in and out, um, but essentially I've grown that. I've grown that to become a really strong one of my really strong revenue streams, and uh, and it, it's it's continuing to 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 grow and change and evolve. And the mastermind group is part of that. So I'm not doing exactly what I did in 2017, and I'm not necessarily doing story grid certification work. I think that's more name recognition for me now. I'm not really as plugged into that community as I was four years ago, um, which is no, that's no judgment on them. It's just, you know, we, we talked about uh, one of our, our other episodes about sort of outgrowing communities or uh, moving in different directions. And I've just sort of personally gone in a different direction from them, but I still have that credential and, and that still means something to, to people in this industry. So, um so yeah, that it's it's really grown and evolved, and it's it's sort of kind of influenced all the decisions I've made since. Mm -hmm. Well, and it sounds like your your community is a way of leveraging your time differently. You know, I, I mean, it would be hard to keep up with, 
you you would just have appointments all day long if you just kept building on the the one to one model. And there are people who do that, and 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 people who enjoy that. So like I know I know my own personality enough to know that I've got one or two, maybe three calls a day in me before I'm I'm toast. Uh, you know, but there are, there are other people like my my sister in law who's a therapist. Um, it's all she does all day. It's just one client after another. She really enjoys that. And that's, that's all she does. And I think if, if you enjoy that, you don't necessarily need to, you don't need to evolve out of it. You don't even need to scale it. You just raise your rates. Mm -hmm. Uh, because then, then, because you can't, you can't add more hours. Like there's only so many clients you can work with, but as you raise your rates, you get higher quality clients or clients who are a better match for you and and you tend to make more money so you don't have to transition out of one-to-one -one, but i knew the way i'm wired i kind of had to i knew i couldn't sustain mm -hmm. that so we've talked about you know different pace different different paces working for different people um for you you had to go the crazy route and <laughs> jump into the deep end in 2017 and and some people you know might be intrigued by that and might be inspired by that story and and want to try to do the same other people might take a more conservative approach you know we we know some people out there are are um just starting to think about what they're going to do after their conventional retirement um but i think regardless of pace there there is there's some patterns there there are some lessons that people like you have learned that are useful for all of us to to learn about and talk about. Um, and I, I mentioned in an earlier episode that um, you know one of the benefits of your story is is we get to see somebody going through some of the some predictable stages before the rest of us get there, right? So keeping that in mind, I mean, you've worked your way through this without a playbook. Um, I, I'm. I'm guessing early on you didn't know what your your biggest challenges would be or what your most powerful levers would be. Um, knowing what you know now, what would you recommend to people who are at the beginning of a similar journey? Uh, I mean, like, what are priorities one, two, and three? Yeah, that's a it's a great question because I think it's what everyone wants to know. Like, okay, what what do I do now? Tell tell me what to do now. I'm always very careful about giving advice and maybe this is semantics uh, because uh, I like to share my experience as opposed to giving advice uh, because just because it worked for me doesn't mean it's going to work for you. But if you can learn from my experience, then you're going to find the path that, that suits you. So again, maybe it's semantics, but I'll, I'll couch it that way. I, I would say the first thing you need to do right now, the first one of the things that I did is I identified the people who are where I wanted to be. So uh, these names won't mean much to people outside of, of the publishing and internet marketing world, but uh, I was studying, you know, Joanna Penn, and I became friends with her, and, and Chris, Brogan, Chris Brogan, and Jim Kukrell, and Brian Clark, and Matt Stone, and, and, there, um, and Sean Coyne, and there are a number of people who uh, I studied. I, I, I paid attention. What are they doing? How are they doing it? Because... There's a difference between buying an online course from someone who's going to tell you how to start a successful business versus studying someone who has launched a successful business. <laughs> and so I, you know, I studied these people. I became friends with many of them or, or, uh, or clients of them. 
I took notes. I, I deconstructed. Uh, they call it funnel hacking in, in the internet marketing world. And that, that sounds you know, very sort of black hat. But that's, um, the idea is that you, you just study what's working. And again, like I, didn't, I didn't go. Like Joanna Penn took the affiliate route, and, and she makes really good money um, through affiliate in our podcasting. I didn't go that route. Um, Chris Brogan has corporate clients. I didn't go that route. But I learned a ton from them. So I would say what we're doing now and what I think is our value proposition for our listeners is we are teachers. Um, we are career educators. And um, follow this. <laughs> like, it, this is, like this is my next chapter. This is your next chapter. We're, we're in different, you and I are in different places. But this is both a new venture for us. So Pay attention to what we're doing. Um, look at what works, what doesn't work. W what do we do that, that resonates with you? What, what do we do that o annoys you? Like, take notes, pay attention to that. I think that's the most important thing is, is identifying that person in the position where you want to be and then, and then studying what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, and I have seen you do so much of that. Gosh, just the list of names you just rattled off, like... Uh, all these people, you know, I just studied them. Um, it's it seems simple. Um, I I'm also you know I heard in there, you had to sort of decide what parts of of their story you wanted to make your own, right? Like there you were like, I didn't want to do this the way that this guy did, and so um, I think part of it is also knowing who you are, right? I mean. And, and having clarity about that. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, again, I, I'm generalizing here, uh, but if you are a teacher or a coach, you probably like working directly with other people. Like that's that's probably an assumption. Like it, you won't last. I don't think you would last long in the in the profession. Uh, you wouldn't last long in the classroom if you didn't enjoy working directly with with people. Uh, and I'm talking children and coworkers, faculty. Um, administrators, parents. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I'm a pretty hardcore introvert, but I also need people. I need, I need that interaction and I, I really enjoy helping people. So like Joanna's model is not based on interaction at all. Like the affiliate model is more about um, targeted traffic and, and, and capturing targeted traffic in, in a certain place. Like, and that's not the same. So yeah, absolutely. I think you have to realize what it is that you're good at, what it is you enjoy, but you got to find successful examples of that, and that that's the key. And that that's what I've that's what I've done with all those all the people I mentioned and people I didn't is I I found the things that was working for them um, that I knew I could do or I would like doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is one of those invisible threads that ties all all academics and educators together. Is they um, in a sense they they already study people. They they have a a deep understanding of people, and and um, I think that we can all use that to our advantage. Definitely. Um, so speaking of that, I'm going to pivot us a little bit, and I didn't prep you for this, but um, uh, you know, in the spirit of keeping our our curtain open for everyone to see, um, we talked about the people who would be potential consumers of whatever this is we're doing, you know? Um, and we actually spent a bit of time defining that 
first. And I just thought it'd be useful to open the door a little bit and talk about that. Um, because it's a, I think it's a sort of a newer way of thinking about starting something, um, is start by identify your audience. Um, right. So that this ties to that no knowing people piece, but, um, I just wondered if we could just kind of pull the curtain back a little bit on, on some of that and talk about that as a, as a trend. I'm somewhat ashamed to admit that uh, it's it's taking me this long to to get that. <laughs> when I say this long, I mean uh, on the verge of turning 50 and, and realizing um, that all the success I've had since I've started this venture has been, um, uh, I, won't, I won't call it accidental, but it, it, it hasn't, ha hasn't been best practices. So, uh, you know, the, the, the traditional entrepreneur, especially in the, digital space when you're talking about, uh, you know, services as opposed to products. It was always that, well, you come up with the idea and then you build the idea and then you find the audience, you find the customer for that idea. And uh, I think that era is over. I think it worked. It did work for a certain amount of time. Like you look at the rise of Silicon Valley in the 2000s and, um, you know, the, the, the tech bro culture that's come out of that, uh, you know, the, the companies looking for the, for the big IPOs or exit strategies. Like, I'm not saying that didn't work, but I, I think we're, we're on the cusp of something new. And I, I think the pandemic probably accelerated that. And I want to give total props to Brian Clark for this. He, he's the one preaching this right now. Uh, and I don't know how many people are paying attention. <laughs> and, and the reason why it's not super sexy is because it's not a hack. Um, it's not something you can get seed money and just create. Um, the idea is that you've got to find that audience first because you don't necessarily know what they want. And when I came to you with this idea, I said, my bias is I want to, I just want to build something. I don't care what I'm going to build it and then we'll go find people for it. And when I look back over the, uh, specifically the past 10 years, I've built so many things that nobody wanted. <laughs> I thought they were great ideas. Uh, maybe I even had friends tell me they were great ideas, and then I couldn't couldn't sell it. And 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 not because I'm not a good salesperson. It's just because it wasn't what people were looking for. And I think I finally, after having it drilled home in in Brian Clark's course that I took, I finally am accepting the fact that in in at this time, probably for the next five to ten to fifteen years you're going to have to start with an audience, not an idea. And that's really hard for creative people because we've got all these great ideas and we just know they're excellent. And if we just build them, you know, Kevin Costner, they will come. And that's not true. It doesn't work that way. So you and I have spent, and, and I think maybe we could probably do a whole episode on our sort of customer archetype uh, and, and talk about who that person is and why we, why we went that way. But I've spent a lot of time talking to people writing, passing ideas back and forth, and trying to define who represents the audience that we want to build. And we committed right now, uh, and I warned you, I would, I, would pull, I would try pulling us off the rails on this. We committed to doing this podcast and then a free newsletter and not build anything until we had enough people in our audience on our newsletter, on our list, that we could ask them what they wanted or ask them what they needed. And until that point, I'm not allowed to build anything. Mm -hmm. No courses, no books, uh, you know, nothing. Like you and I, behind the scenes, we have some ideas about where this could go, and I think we'll probably go there. 
But we have to go there because our audience is telling us they want it, not because we think it's a good idea. Yeah. It's a really different way of thinking about it. I'm still adjusting to it, to be honest. Um, but it's kind of like a start with who. Um, I think I would categorize it that way. Um, and it's reminding me of, uh, you know, Simon Sinek's book, uh, Start With Why. And, you know, that's pretty compelling, too. But it's it's really a different, it's approaching something from a very different angle. And I think you're right. I, I think it is really connected to a lot of trends that are just coming together in the world right now. Um, it, it's the way things are organized. And, and I think um, entrepreneurship, uh, startups, it, it has to evolve. The whole concept and the way you approach things has to evolve just like anything else in the world. You have to pay attention to what's happening and, and adjust your strategy based on what you see. Yeah, I mean... You, you can make a living, you can make a decent living with an audience of 50 people. I, I think like when we say audience, a lot of times people imagine, you know, 100,000 Twitter followers or, you know, 40,000 likes on Instagram. Like, no, not like if you get really specific with an audience and, and they have a problem and you have a solution for it, it doesn't, it doesn't take many people. Uh, it, it's hard. It's hard when I, it's hard for me to mention specific numbers because it, there's so many variables uh, and I don't want to give people a, a false idea around things. But um, for us, like for what we're doing here, I think a um, hundred, like once we get a hundred people who have, who have uh, gone to our website and once it's, once it's there and they have opted in and they want to hear from us, and they said, yes, here's my email address. Please contact me. When we have 100 people, I think then we can ask them what they want. And then I'm going to feel confident in starting to build stuff. But that's 100, not like 10,000, not 100,000. Like I think uh, if you have 100 people who are the exact type of person, and this is not random people. I'm not talking about friends and relatives and and uh, and siblings and that sort of thing. I mean, I'm talking about 100 people who we've targeted. This type of person, we get 100 people. We're gonna know what we're gonna know what they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and having that audience is useful in a lot of ways. And it's it's not necessarily we're not necessarily looking for audience members to send us checks, right? I mean, it's uh, I know we've talked about paid communities, but uh, having an audience isn't necessarily about uh, a monetary exchange with with those people. Um, I know that, you know, I told you about the, the, those two guys, um, the mythical morning show, you know, it's completely open and free and nobody's sending those guys checks, but, um, they have such a big audience that, that people recognize that and, and they're willing, you know, there, there are companies that are willing to leverage their audience, uh, by paying them. So, um, I think I'm just pointing out, you know, what an audience means and what you do, what you can do with it and how you can leverage it can mean a whole bunch of different things. Exactly. Yeah. It's not, it's not a direct transactional situation. It can be, but it, it, it doesn't have to be like, you know, podcasting is a great example. Uh, no one pays for podcasts, but why do people do them? <laughs> you know, how are people making money off podcasts if, if no one's paying for them? 
again, this is a topic of another conversation. There are ways to monetize a podcast, but it doesn't have to come on the backs of your audience. Not that there's anything wrong with that. If people find value in what you're doing or you're solving a problem for them, they're more than happy to pay. And I think you're doing something good in the world if you can offer a service that solves someone a problem, someone's problem. But it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, and, and there are examples we can get into maybe in later episodes where, uh, where I've made a decent revenue um, from a creative project like a podcast that, um, and that money did not come from the listeners. Mm-hmm. Oh, let me just clarify. Are you saying I'm not getting paid for this? I'm saying the check's in the oh, mail. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, now that I know the check's in the mail, uh, I, I feel, I feel okay. I feel like we did, we accomplished something here. Good, good. I want to make sure you're the highest paid uh, co-host on this podcast. Uh, so, any last words of wisdom? You know, the, the last thing I, I would say, again, this is from my own experience, is uh, don't assume everyone has the skill set that you do, uh, especially when it comes to teaching and coaching. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you're 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 still working for a school. Uh, Good teachers are hard to find. Even bad teachers are hard to find. Uh, you know, if you if you can teach or you have some experience teaching or, or coaching or leading in some way, uh, you probably take that for granted. You probably think everyone can do that, and uh, everyone can't do that. And and I'm not going to call anyone out specifically, but uh, college professors can can tend to be some of the worst teachers because they're not hired to teach. They're they're hired for their expertise and they're hired to publish. Uh, so I'm not saying college professors can't be good teachers, uh, or that they're not, but my point is if you have some experience in, in teaching or coaching or leading people, don't assume the average person on the street does. You have a very valuable skill set, um, and you take it for granted because you probably do it every day. Thanks for listening. Go to teachingtransformations.com and get instant access to transformations the free weekly email with the best personally curated resources to help those in their late 40s or 50s to design a post-career life.